It's my honor and privilege uh, to introduce our guest speaker who's here this morning with his wife, Lisa. We're so glad to have you both here with yeah. us. Thank you so much for coming. Steve is the founder of Capable Life and the author of Managing Leadership Anxiety. You have heard us talk about this book. If you're on staff, you have gone through this book with us. Uh, and you have even got to hear from Steve himself as he came to Cross Purpose not too long ago. Uh, he's also been a pastor for a long time. Since 2005, he was the lead pastor uh, up at Discovery Church in Broomfield. So he brings pastoral experience to this ministry as well. And he's been a wonderful resource uh, to us. He's got a table out in the lobby with books and a journal for purchase. We encourage you to stop by and purchase those materials. We know that you'll find them helpful to your Christian walk. It's been a huge encouragement to me and the Providence team over the years, and we know you'll enjoy it as well. So this time, Steve, would you come? What an what a absolute treat. I, I think officially my job is to help you, uh, but man, what a gift this has already been to me and my wife, Lisa. Um, it's just a pleasure for us to be here together. You can, you can thank my wife for giving up. When she married me, she gave up a perfectly adequate name uh, to then take on the name Cuss. Um, we have three children, and um, we're not always the sharpest tool in the drawer. I'm from Australia, so in Australia we would say we're a few kangaroos shy of a full paddock. And uh, our third child, we didn't realize we'd named her a sentence. Um, her whole name is a sentence. She came home from school in, in fourth grade, and she said, Dad, um, I, I, I really can't wait to get married. And I was like, you're just a little on the young side. What's going on? And, of course, someone had been making fun of her name at school, Cuss. And she's like, my name's a sentence, Kaylee May Cuss. That's what we named our daughter. We didn't know. We just didn't even know. Um, so for those of you alarmed, there's nothing we can do about any of this. It's just what it is. But man, Lisa and I came in. Um, I've had great affection for Jason, your founder, for a number of years. I, I think the work that God is doing here at Providence and, and Cross Purpose is just remarkable. And just even hearing Jason just a few minutes ago, uh, sharing what God is doing in, in his heart is profound for us. But also just starting to worship and seeing Kevin rocking a cowbell. I was like, all right, all right, cowbell. And then Pastor Roberto, uh, man, bringing the vibe. So um, just an absolute, absolute treat to be with you. Uh, okay, here's where, what we want to talk about today. I, I think most of us have a gap between what we believe about God and then what we experience from God. I don't know if you've encountered that, but I've encountered that. I believe that God loves me, but I don't often feel it, to be honest. I believe God is with me, but I can go a day or days without even being aware of God's presence. I get all wrapped up in myself. Um, and the, the, third, the third gap, I would say, I just thought I'd be further along by now. Um, maybe in another way, I just thought I'd be better at being a Christian than I actually am. Uh, yesterday morning, a telemarketer called me. You know how we all have unspoken values and you don't even know what you value until someone violates that value, right? Like for me, unspoken value, telemarketers should not be calling on the weekend. They shouldn't be doing it. So I get a phone call and I answer it not knowing who it is. And then there's that space where most of you hang up and I don't for two bizarre reasons. Number one, I'm courteous. 
Number two, I like to taunt telemarketers. It's not, I'm not proud of this. I'm not proud of this. And out of the gate, he asks me if I need senior citizen resources. What? And I said, how old do you think I am? And then he just hung up. He just hung up. And then I got mad. Now, in that little encounter, I was not aware of God's love. I was not aware of God's presence. I did not, shall we say, seek the Lord on how I should behave. I was just operating out of autopilot. It's unbelievable how many of us get so easily and quickly triggered that we just start operating out of our own steam. Now, out of the three gaps, God's love, God's presence, my progress, the one that I've grappled with the most is God's love. Most of my adult life, uh, even as a pastor, I could tell you the way God loves you in a way that might move you to tears, but have struggled to believe it for myself. Uh, I believe God loves me generically because there's billions of people in this world and I'm just another generic human being that God has to love. Those of you who are fans of the Broadway musical Les Miserables, uh, I'm prisoner 24601. I'm just another number in God's system. But the idea that God specifically and particularly not just loves me but enjoys my company, that's very difficult for me to believe. And this started for me when I was a trauma chaplain. Before I was a pastor, I was a young guy straight out of college and I served in a level one trauma hospital. Some of you are very familiar with this. That's the one with the helicopter. If you watch your hospital dramas, you know, if you watch hospital shows, by the way, if you watch Grey's Anatomy, I don't want to know that about you. I just want to tell you right now. I don't want, I don't want to know that. Don't tell me that. Um, no, this is not the time. Uh, listen, listen, guys, season three, Grey's Anatomy, that guy shows up in the pickup truck, there's a deer in the back of the truck, and Izzy resuscitates the deer. She resuscitates the deer. That, to me, is the moment where we should have said to ourselves, self, I think it's time for me to spend my time in other ways. But that's just me. If you, if you, love, if you love Grey's Anatomy, you and I are fine with each other. Um, but if, you've, if you watch those shows, you know what it's like in the emergency room and everything's flying. And uh, that what's interesting in that job as a chaplain is not only are you there to attend to people in the worst moments of their life, you are there to help people die. You are there to help people as their precious loved ones die. What gets fascinating is you are there to connect emotionally to strangers. We don't know each other. And suddenly my job is to help you through the worst moment of your life. Um, and a lot of what happens in that is people are desperate, of course, and they believe that the chances of God answering my prayer as a chaplain is better than God answering their prayer as a normal citizen. And so they call the chaplain. And so dozens of times a day, I was not prepared for this. Dozens of times a day, people are begging me to beg God for a miracle. And I'm a chronic people pleaser. I hate to let people down. I hate, even today, I hate to let people down. I'm also what's known as an over-functioner. I take more responsibility than God has asked me to take. Some of you can relate to that, yeah. right? Like someone's somewhere someone is in need and you anxiously have to go help them. Like you don't even ask God, God, are you, here's a good question for you, is God calling me to help them or is my anxiety calling me to help them? I struggle to tell the difference even today between someone's need and my incessant need to be needed really hard to notice the difference. And so there I am as a chaplain. People are begging me to beg God for a miracle. Now, here's what's true. I come from a cognitive faith background, I, I, a very brainiac type faith, but I believe that God does miracles. I have witnessed miracles and I have seen God answer prayer 
even as a hospital chaplain, but if I can be honest with you, the percentages were not great. The statistical percentages of God answering those desperate prayers were not great, and it hurt me. I, I couldn't name this at the time. This took me a while to figure out, but it hurt me to let people down. And so I started to build a protective layer around my heart. I, I sort of started to give up asking God for things. Because if you never expect anything out of God, God can never let you down. And it's very difficult to experience God's love when you have a Teflon layer around your heart protecting you from outside vulnerability. There's a wonderful punk Christian singer in the 1980s named Steve Taylor. I love Steve Taylor's music. He had a song called, Since I Gave Up Hope, I Feel Much Better. I, I can relate to that. Now... When I was a chaplain, I was introduced to this fascinating theory. This is the theory I wrote my book on. For those of you joining us tonight, this is what I'll be talking about. Um, this is what uh, Josh and Katie had us over last night to share with some of you who are community group leaders and deacons. By the way, uh, Josh and Katie, two things you need to know about them. One, their front doorbell does not work. Um, where's Jocelyn? Jocelyn and I, we, we kind of walked up together. We, we had a wonderful conversation uh, just waiting for, I don't know, it had to be, what, four or five minutes, Jocelyn, right? Um, and, and the second thing is, holy smokes, if you ever get an invitation to the house for a meal, you should say yes. yes. Oh, my goodness, Josh and Katie are a powerhouse. It's like having a, like a, a luxury gourmet meal. It's unbelievable. So I would just invite you, if you've never been to their house, why don't you just ask them uh, if you can come over? And uh, Josh, I'm sure, will happily smoke meat for you like he did for us. Okay, so anyway, when I was a chaplain, I was introduced to this theory, and it's a fascinating theory, and I'm not going to nerd out too much. I will nerd out a little bit because I think it's helpful, but in a nutshell, what this theory does is it teaches you how to notice anxiety in any room. You can walk into any room, like the next time you're with your family of origin, right? A lot of you are right now doing Pete Scazzaro's Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, and you're in that chapter where Pete's talking about the way you were raised. Pete, leave me alone. Come on, man. Right? Pete famously says, Jesus may be in your heart, but grandpa is in your bones. Right? That's one of the things that Pete Scazzaro says. And so some of you are wrestling. Some of you even brave enough to do a, a genogram. Oh, man, looking at generational traits and patterns. But you know, like you may feel that anxiety when you're around your family of origin. Uh, or it might be that you're in a staff meeting. And you can just see it spreading. This theory I was trained in as a chaplain, it taught me how to walk into any room and notice the anxiety spreading. Now, here's what's fascinating about it. Yes, I was taught to notice the anxiety spreading among the family. That's not very hard to do. This family gets the worst phone call in their life. All of their anxiety is brought to the surface. That's easy to notice. But where it got fascinating is this theory also teaches you how to notice when you're catching it and you're spreading it. Okay, now things are getting interesting. Now, there's all kinds of anxieties. There's trauma and there's grief and there's anxiety that requires mental health medication. I'm actually not qualified to teach on any of those. My wife, Lisa, is a trauma therapist. I'm not trained in trauma. Um, I'm acquainted with grief. I'm very familiar with grief. But when it comes to like depression, anxiety, I'm a pastor, I'm not a medical professional. I will say this, though, as a pastor, if you or a loved one need mental health medication, you should thank Jesus and take mental health medication. It's a gift from God. 
there are, I don't, I don't think this is the case here at Providence, but there are some church backgrounds and maybe you were raised in a background like this where it was shameful to your faith. It was shameful to your faith. And it might have even been shameful to your parents' reputation that you need a mental health medication. But we live in the 21st century and we have amazing science that God has given us. So I'll just say as a pastor, I'm not qualified to diagnose, but I am qualified spiritually to say, thank Jesus and take it. And, and let me just put it this way. Mental health medication, it's not a comment on your faith. It's a comment on your chemicals. Amen. That's what I was Amen. talking about. Um, I, I'm a raging optimist. I wake up happy almost every day. And you can't blame me for that. That's not my fault. Um, it's not my fault. I, I wake up at first and goal. And I've got the ball in my hand. And I can read the defense like Peyton Manning. And I can throw that touchdown. Whereas some people who really struggle with depression and anxiety, they just wake up in the wrong end zone. And, and they're fumbling the ball and the defense is blitzing. And what mental health medication does, it doesn't get them down into the other end zone, but it gets them at least down the field. It gives them a, a fighting chance. So there are all kinds of different anxieties. The one that I am trained in is what's clinically called chronic anxiety. And if you want, you can Google that. You could even do it now during the sermon. There will be moments where I get a little boring. That'd be a great time to get that QR code back up and register your kids for tonight. Uh, but... Uh, but it is fascinating to me because um, chronic anxiety, it doesn't feel like worry and fear. That's not what it feels like. It feels like reactivity. That's what it feels like. It feels like reactivity. Uh, things like trauma and grief and that kind of anxiety when you're almost in a car accident. Or you know the kind of anxiety. Have you ever lost your child in a public place? I have three children. I've lost all three of my children. Two of them while Lisa was out of town, by the way. I remember as she was flying back, I was saying to the kids, you know, mom doesn't need to know everything that happened this weekend. Um, okay, those anxieties, those are all based on something real. Trauma is based on something real that happened to you. Grief is based on something real that you lost. Acute anxiety is based on a real danger situation, swerving to avoid a car accident dropping everything to find that child. Those are all based on something real. Chronic anxiety, my field. Chronic anxiety is based on something false. It's based on an assumption. It's based on a false belief about yourself, about the other. If you look at your precious relationships, most of the problems in your precious relationships are because of chronic anxiety assumptions you make about each other. Have you ever been in a fight with a family member, maybe a spouse or a loved one, and you forget that they're a loved one and they either become the enemy to defeat or they become the defeater and you're getting pummeled? Like you've lost sight of reality. That's what chronic anxiety does. It puts you in a false reality and it's generated by assumptions and false beliefs and because you carry assumptions and I carry assumptions because I carry assumptions about you and your assumptions, it's the only kind of anxiety that's contagious. That's what I find fascinating about it. We catch it from each other. So when as a young chaplain, I walk into a room and the young man grabs me by the shoulders and he's shaking me and he's screaming, how could God allow this to happen? He's screaming it. One of my assumptions as a pastor is I must have the answer. But I've lost track with reality. He's not actually asking a question. He's just in shock. And in my early chaplaincy, I'm not proud of this, I would actually try to give him a theological cognitive answer. What? 
What's going on there? That's because my chronic anxiety had kicked me into a false reality. I'm no longer seeing what is going on, and I'm no longer able to even see what God is calling me to do. I'm just operating out of my own reactivity. Now, uh, reactivity is fascinating, and this is a little thing that maybe you could do a social experiment when you leave. Everyone gets either bigger than human or smaller than human when they're filled with reactivity. So you've been in that staff meeting where John just uses more words. John, we get it, enough. And he always uses more words. But like Sally doesn't speak up unless she's directly called upon. Like Sally doesn't speak up in the meeting. She has her own secret meeting after the meeting. John got bigger, Sally got smaller. Most of us go uh, one way more than the other, but we tend to go both ways. I tend to get bigger. Um, I was flying home from O'Hare Airport uh, about a year and a half ago. Uh, by the way, you may be curious about this. O'Hare Airport in Chicago, that's where Satan lives. That's actually <laughs> Satan's home. Um, and so we're flying home, we land in Denver, and I'm at the back of the plane. I'm like three rows from the back of the plane, and the seatbelt sign goes off, and the family behind me get up and jump the line. Now, in the Cuss family, you wait your turn. Now, what happened? Is, yeah, thanks for that. I appreciate that. So the teenage young lady, she, my, I was kind of weary. My peripheral vision missed her, and she got by me. But the rest of the family, I could catch. I'm like an owl. I could catch them, and I stuck my arm out in the air. By the way, I'm not proud. Of, this is not a story where I'm bragging. This is more of a confession. Also, yes, I was flying home from teaching an anxiety management workshop. That's true too. So the, the teenage young girl gets up the aisle. I'm triggered by a false assumption. Everyone must wait their turn. I've lost sight of reality and I stick my arm out in the aisle like I'm Gandalf. Like none shall pass on my watch, right? Now, even now you're looking at my tricep. You're like, how many human beings can he withhold? Uh, the correct answer is zero. The, uh, the mother invited me to enter into a sexual relationship with my mother. It was not good. It, did not, it was not good. And uh, they were furious, and they busted up the aisle, and I was furious. I was so angry. I was so angry. What happened in that moment? I lost sight of reality, and in that moment, my anxiety said, Steve, you are to become judge, jury, and executioner. What? What? Now, some of you get smaller. Some of you are like a turtle in your shell. Uh, you know, you've heard of fight, fight, fright, freeze, fawn. You might have heard of fawn, F-A-W-N. I know my accent's weird. Fawn is when you're trying to charm your way to safety. Uh, where things get really interesting is when you are the only person of your kind in a meeting. So particularly those of you who maybe, for example, are African-American women and you work in a white male-dominated culture. Oh my goodness, are you working harder at staying human-sized in those meetings when you're trying to get bigger but not too big and smaller but not so much that you diminish yourself? It's exhausting. Uh, a few weeks ago, my teenage daughter had all her friends home and I was the only middle-aged white man in the room. It was terrifying. Anytime you're the only person of your own kind in the room, so, uh, chronic anxiety, this is my specialty, and you'll be amazed at how many triggers you have. Now, every one of us in this room, we have up to five, oh, I made a big mistake there. Can you help me out? Yeah. Okay, it should say the five core false beliefs. Oh, you're a good man. Thank you very much. 
Uh, the five core false needs of every human, and maybe you could find yourself on this big five. You've got control, perfection, always knowing the answer, always being there for people and people's approval. Now, the question you might be playing with, and obviously this is a deep question, where do you find yourself on the big five? Like those of you who are control freaks, you know who you are. You, you walk into that meeting and you've already figured out five scenarios that they may bring up. And then they bring up a scenario you did not plan on. They caught you off guard. And you get defensive or combative. Not because they brought up anything wrong, but because you're no longer in control. Um, you know, you're running the meeting, but John is going on and on. Even though John's the one that's boring, you're the one getting anxious. Uh, perfectionist. Where's my perfectionist? If you'd yeah, stick your hand up better, please. Do a better job of that. Thanks very much. Okay, there we go. Yeah, very good. Well done, perfectionist. Oh, man, you guys are, are quite... I have a lot of empathy for perfectionists. You're quite tortured souls because you believe that even though you've never done it before, that you should do it perfectly the first time you ever do something. I'm learning cello right now. I, I love playing guitar, and I thought I'd like to learn cello. I'm really bad at it. Like, when I play, all the neighborhood dogs gather around. Like, <laughs> it's really bad. But I'm not a perfectionist. I don't mind being a rookie, but you do. And uh, when you do good work and someone says, that was really good work, you're like, no, it wasn't. Let me show you all the mistakes. Right? Always knowing the answer, that's for me. If, if I'm in a meeting and Jimmy asks Renee a question and I know the answer, I have to stop myself from answering. What? What is that? Uh, being there for people, we've already talked about that. Some of you, you overcommit and you can't manage all your obligations and then you let people down. Or you get irritated. Okay, you, listen, sir, you're not allowed to hit your neighbor as I'm speaking. This happens once in a while. I'll be sharing and someone will like, hey, that's you, buddy. No, no, we all diagnose ourselves in this situation. We don't blame others. But, um, you, know, some, you, you, you know, some of you, you're just wired. Like, like somebody somewhere is suffering. I must bake lasagna. You just start baking lasagna. It's like a moth. It's like a moth to a flame. Um, and for some of us, this is me as well, is people's approval. I cannot stand to let someone down. This would have been my number one challenge as a lead pastor, for sure. Disappointing people. Oh. And that's because these are false needs. But what chronic anxiety does is it actually convinces you that it's a real need in the moment. When that lady was busting forward in the plane, my chronic anxiety showed up so quickly, I didn't even know I was anxious. That's how it often happens. And I just got into reactivity. When I got off the plane, the flight attendant pulled me aside. She'd seen the whole thing. She said, sir, I, I thought it would help you to know that young lady was having a panic attack and you blocked her family from helping her. Nice. Nice. That wasn't the time for me to say, I'm actually a local pastor in town. If you'd like to come to our church, I'd be happy to share Jesus with you. What, what's going on in this moment is, is we have these beliefs in God, God's love, God's presence, our spiritual growth. But it turns out that that is our most precious belief. For those of us in this room who are Christians, our belief in Jesus is our most precious belief. That is the most precious belief I hold, is Jesus' love. But unfortunately for me, what I've come to discover, it, it is not my deepest belief. That's where things get tricky. And that's where liberation begins is when you can have the very brave and vulnerable conversation about your precious belief versus your deepest beliefs. And now we're getting into some of that work you guys are doing with Pete Scazzaro because he's helping rummage around 
in your deepest beliefs. What's going on is anxiety, chronic anxiety, these false needs. It's, it's selling you a gospel. It's selling you a gospel. Now, let's just get nerdy just for a short minute. Um, you may or may not be aware of this, but the word gospel was a Roman Empire word before it was a church word. Did you know that? In other words, the, the empire that Jesus was born into, where Caesar Augustus was the, the king or the Caesar, uh, they talked about Caesar and they described it as a gospel. So Caesar had a poet that followed him around everywhere. His name was Virgil. You can Google this, Caesar Augustus and Virgil. You can read some of Virgil's poetry. And Virgil wrote gospel about Caesar. Okay, uh, let's go back to high school for some of you, right? Julius Caesar, you remember Julius Caesar and then he died and his adopted son, Augustus or Octavian, Augustus became the Caesar. The first thing Augustus did was declare his dad, Julius, a god, which makes him, anyone want to play this game? The son of God. Oh, that's fascinating. Up until Caesar Augustus in the Old Testament, the Messiah was called the son of man. But in the New Testament, Paul and Luke stole the phrase son of God from the Roman Empire and attributed it to the wrong guy. This guy from the middle of nowhere, like from Salina, Kansas, essentially, according to the Roman Empire is where Jesus is from, with apologies from everyone who comes from Kansas. Okay, so Virgil starts writing poetry about Caesar Augustus. Here's one, I'll, I'll paraphrase it for you. Virgil says, the day of Augustus's birth is a day of good news and glad tidings and great joy for all mankind, for through the birth of Caesar is ushered peace for everyone. Does that sound, is that ringing any Christmas bells for anybody? Unbelievable. And that's, and that's because Rome had a gospel. It was called the Peace of Rome. They actually had a name for it, the Peace of Rome. Now, if you wanted peace from the Roman Empire, no problem. They're happy to dangle it forever out of reach. It was never something you could get. But here's how you get peace with the Roman Empire. Number one, let them conquer your village. Let them come in and conquer you. And then kill a bunch of your men. Enslave some other men. And then you can read about this in 2 Corinthians. Then let Rome parade through the village they just conquered and celebrate Rome. And the way they would do it is all the centurions are at the front. It's called a triumphal procession. And then all of your husbands and sons and fathers are in chains being dragged through. It's like they're bragging in your village that they conquered you. Then they set up a, some kind of a puppet king like Pontius Pilate. And now he rules you, and now you have to pay tax, lots of it. And you pay your tax the best you can, but maybe you have a bad crop. And so the centurions come knocking on your house, and they take your child as payment for the tax, and they enslave your child. Pretty good deal, don't you think? Now, if you let them do all of that, they will give you peace. Peace. And uh, most Bible scholars would say that 90 to 97 percent of the Roman Empire paid, and 3% of the Roman citizens got the benefit. The majority paid, the minority got the benefit. Okay, uh, let's talk about being a teenager in the 1980s in Australia. That's where I was raised. 1980s, as we all know, being the best decade to be a teenager. Right, because of the music, primarily because of the music. Um, and, and so as a teenager, I lived for a teenage gospel. The promise was you get to belong, you get to be somebody. The path, or what I had to do, I had to make a girl laugh, 
I had to get good grades and I had to be good at sports. Now, what would happen is I would, I, I would practice in my brain. Okay, I'm going to talk to Penny Concannon today. By the way, her name really is Penny Concannon. And I would, I, okay, I'm going to make Penny laugh. That's the goal of the day. This is the teenage boy brain right here. Just, and so I'd walk into school and there's Penny with all her friends and I'd practice. But I walk up to Penny and my brain becomes circus music. I just lose all sense and I say something dumb and she doesn't laugh. And now am I paying? Oh my God. What, oh, I can't believe it. I go home for days. What does she think? What's she telling her friends? How am I going to face it the next day? Uh, you can actually map out every gospel through the path, the promise, and the payment. Every gospel that we believe has a path, and it has a promise, and it has a payment. Hey, I'm sorry for the alliteration. 1990s preaching is making a comeback. But it does help us remember that every gospel says, okay, do this thing. And then it says, then you'll get this thing, the promise. And then somebody pays. But what's fascinating is in every gospel ever, the Roman Empire, the, the old God, the Pharaoh's God system in the times of Moses, the Greek God system that you studied in high school, uh, even modern religions like Islam, the human does the paying and the God gets the benefit. Does that make sense? In every gospel ever except one, the human always pays. Do you remember in the Old Testament with that sacrifice system and you have to sacrifice crops or a child to appease the God? Now, here's my point. I've got two points here. Number one, chronic anxiety has a gospel and it makes you pay. Chronic anxiety says to me, just keep worrying. That's the path. And I will give you peace. That's the promise. But I do the pain. Um, now, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God pays for the sake of the human rather than the other way around. This is what's hard to believe about the gospel of Jesus. This is why I struggle to believe my own precious belief because it's too good to be true. There's no way that that's the way it actually works. God pays, I get the benefit. God walks the path and God gives me the promise. The peace and freedom that is promised, God is actually good for his word. It's really quite amazing. So what I'm going to encourage you to do is you can do a couple of things. You can start to map out your deepest beliefs on this path of path, promise, and payment and figure out what do I believe and who's paying and am I getting the promise? Am I ever getting the promise the simplest way to measure a gospel is just to see who is paying. And uh, once you start to do this brave work, this vulnerable work, it's often done best in a community group because it takes time and vulnerability. But man, once you start noticing why do I believe and give my life to my chronic anxiety so much when it never gives me the promise and it makes me pay, and so now we want to kind of get a little more invasive and personal. And some of you are like, wait, weren't we already invasive? No, I'm going to get a little more invasive as we talk about uh, our inner critic. Our inner critic. One of, the, one of the core ways that your chronic anxiety really activates is through the story you tell yourself about yourself when you don't live up to your own standards. When I talk about inner critic, hands up who knows what I'm talking about. In most of us in this room, we know what an inner critic is. 
Uh, those of you who are younger, congratulations, you'll meet it later. Um, you know, usually early 20s, you say, oh, you know, who are you? Oh, that voice of condemnation. Nice to meet you. Yes. Thank you for showing up in my life. Uh, the inner critic is that internal voice of condemnation that speaks condemnation and shame to you whenever you let yourself down. Now, it is related to those big five. Usually, it's when you didn't do it perfectly, when you weren't there for everybody, when you didn't have control, and so on. Your inner critic says, I have a word for you. And the thing that it has in common is it's always a word of condemnation and shame. Have you noticed that? When's the last time your inner critic said, cheer up, you're doing great? Never. The correct answer is never. It never gives you that message. Okay, so let me tell you a bit about my inner critic. Um, Initially, if my inner critic first starts talking... It usually says, you should know better by now. That would be like the surface level message of my inner critic. If I let it have its way, it is saying to me, come on, dude, you should know better. And it's very condescending. You should know better by now. Come on. Now, if I let it have its way longer, it'll start calling me stupid. I love to fly fish. And concurrently, I'm not very good at fly fishing. I've never had a hobby that I love so much that I'm so bad at. Although, come to think of it, cello now comes to mind. But, <laughs> but fly fishing, um, I just love it and not great at it. And the thing that happens for me the worst is when I'm in the water and the trout are feeding and everyone around me is catching and I can't catch a fish. My inner critic says, I, I've had it say this exact phrase to me. See how stupid you are? You're so stupid, you're not even smarter than a fish with a brain the size of a fish. That's pretty rough. That's pretty rough. Now, if I really let my inner critic have its way, in the end, it'll say, you are not worth loving. That's the deepest, most shameful message of my inner critic. You're not worth loving. Which is why I struggle to experience God's love. Because my inner critic had largely lived rent-free inside my head. I had not learned to tame my inner critic. I did not know that my inner critic... I didn't even know there was an option. I just assume that it's an autopilot thing. We all deal with it. But that's what anxiety does, is it wants to keep you isolated. It wants to say, you're the only one. So don't talk about it. Just let it stay looped around in your brain. Uh, sometimes I travel around and I'll do workshops. And we play in our workshops. People would be at round tables and I'll give them things to do in real time. And we play this game that is sweeping the nation. We call it the let's talk about our inner critic game. It's a fabulous game. <laughs> And uh, here's what we do. We have everyone take turns around the table and talk about what the message of their inner critic is, just like I did for you just now. Everyone takes a turn, and they share the message of their inner critic. And then everyone else is like a secretary, and you write down what you're feeling when you hear it. What are you feeling? Like when I said uh, my inner critic's deepest message is, you're not worth loving, some of you groaned. You went, oh. Like that. Some of you are like, is this the time to give the preacher a hug? The correct answer is no, it's okay. But you, you feel this, like this is what we do, is you hear me talk about the voice of my inner critic and some of you right now say, Steve, that's not true. But that's what we do. We can hear it in others. We give it free reign in ourselves. And so what I had to learn to do is put my inner critic on this path, promise, Um, payment system to discover that my inner critic always has me on a path, never gives me the promise, and is always making me pay. And now I can grow a little weary of it, 
And now I have an opportunity to compare its gospel that I'm believing with the most precious gospel I've ever met in my life, the gospel of Jesus. And uh, Josh was kind enough to read this to us before. Um, This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. John's amazing here. Like I'm not making the case that the authors of Scripture had sophisticated 21st century psychological knowledge. But John's onto something here where John says, when you are in God's presence, it's extremely vulnerable. Have you experienced that? To be fully loved by God is a terrifying thing before it's a wonderful thing. And what your inner critic is doing, it's well-meaning but misguided. It is trying to protect you from harm. It's actually trying to protect you from harm getting into your heart. And in this kind of twisted way, it's condemning you before someone else can condemn you. I used to work with a perfectionist. I'm not a perfectionist, but this guy I used to work with was a perfectionist. And we were going to a meeting together, just the two of us, and we're working on a project together. And before I could even say, Peter, how's your day? He would say, let me show you all the mistakes I've made so you don't, so you don't show me. Like he would, he would want to point out his errors to preempt me showing him the errors. The errors, by the way, that I never would have even noticed. I mean, I wasn't going and looking for those errors, but there was something in him as a perfectionist that felt this need to condemn himself because that would feel better than me condemning him, something I had no plan on doing. Can you relate to that? So what happens is we get in God's presence and our heart gets anxious because God knows everything about us God has seen everything we've ever done. And our heart is like, here comes condemnation. Because fundamentally, most human beings at the end of the day, we believe that Jesus is in fact Zeus. There's a veneer of love. And then we disappoint. We don't do it right. We don't know what we're doing. We feel stupid. And under that is God's disappointment and anger. And so it takes tremendous courage to stand in God's presence, like completely exposed and vulnerable so that we can receive God's love. I love the way John puts it here. When our hearts condemn us, that self-protective layer, God is greater than our hearts and God knows everything. John is making your inner critic compete with the love of Jesus to see who's going to win. It's like a cage match of gospels. Now, I am an Australian citizen. You're welcome. What a treat for all of us that you got to meet one today. Uh, I know this is a multi-ethnic room. Where, uh, do I, am I the only Commonwealther in the room? Anyone else? That come, I'm the only. This often happens to me. Um, I know that most of you, the majority of you in this room, you're American citizens. You prefer to throw perfectly good tea in a harbor than, you know, salute a king, for example. Uh, you see someone wearing a red coat, you want to shoot them. I get it. I get it. But I like, I like having a king. It's very lovely as an Australian. So King Charles, the king of England, is my sovereign king. I know that sounds funny, but King Charles is my sovereign. Before she died, his mum, Queen Elizabeth, and I have great affection for Queen Elizabeth. Um, she was my sovereign queen. Now, if she would uh, um, summon me to Buckingham Palace, I would go with great. I would go with great love. That would be a great honor. But if you've ever watched The Crown, or maybe you know this thing, you go to meet a king or a queen. There's rules. 
There's rules. You don't just start running your mouth. The sovereign speaks first. The sovereign always gets the first word. That's the rule. You wait. So if you've watched The Crown, it's a wonderful scene where Winston Churchill goes to take an audience with the queen and he's just waiting. She speaks. Okay, now she's done. Now you get to speak. But there's still rules. You would never mansplain to the queen, for example. <laughs> and then after you've spoken, the sovereign decides when it's done and they have the last word. So the sovereign gets the first word and the last word. Now, the reason I bring that up is because God is our sovereign. God is your sovereign and my sovereign. Why am I letting my inner critic get the first word and last word in my life? Now, we have this weird thing in church where we think that being down on ourselves is humble. I, I just want to be careful here. I, I don't want to add shame. I want to invite us into freedom by simply saying that correcting your king is not humble. That's arrogant. Does that make sense? When Jesus says, I know the number of hairs on your head, you are fearfully and wonderfully made, and your inner critic says, no, you're not worth loving, and you put more weight in your inner critic than in the gospel of Jesus, that's not humble. That's saying to your king, I know better. I have the last word. And it takes tremendous courage. I mean, I think for me personally, the hardest moment for me was noticing that my inner critic condemns me and Paul saying there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And that was very hard to believe that that was true. I love the way Eugene Peterson translates it in the message. He says it this way. This is the only way we'll know we're living truly, living in God's reality. It's also the way to shut down debilitating self-criticism, even when there's something to it. For God is greater than our worried hearts, and God knows more about us than we do ourselves. Now, I have no interest in self-actualization and self-improvement. And you, you might be sitting here and saying, well, you're just affirming yourself into sin. Like, what, what about when you're living in sin or doing something? That's a really good question. You can learn to discern the voice of God's spirit versus the voice of the inner critic because for many of us, it sounds like one voice. Have you ever noticed that your inner critic never updates its, its message? My inner critic has the same message for me since I was eight years old. I'm a different person now, but it, it's never updating. It's never saying, oh, Steve, I see you're making great progress. Well done. The other thing is... <laughs> It's true. The other thing is the inner critic never gives me a path to freedom. The inner critic attacks my identity. But when I have done something that needs to be repented of or repaired, the Holy Spirit doesn't condemn, it convicts. So you can listen to that voice. Is it a voice of condemnation? That is not God. That's, the whole, that's your inner critic. Is it a voice that's convicting? And is it giving you a path to freedom? That's the Holy Spirit. I've had a number of times in my life where I've had to go to somebody and I've had to say, God has convicted me. I said this thing to you. I did this thing to you. That was wrong. I'm asking your forgiveness. And then that person forgives me. Now we are at peace. Now I experience the gospel I believe in. I get the promise. But my inner critic, it's more like it's watched too much dirty dancing and it just wants to keep baby in a corner. It doesn't want to let me out to have any kind of freedom at all. 
Now, just as we kind of bring this to a close, just a couple of inner critic tips for those of you who maybe want to do some of this work. I'll just say this. This is long, slow, deep work. This is not one sermon and we're all better work. Uh, but I, I can give you a couple of shortcuts that I've learned the hard way. Number one, don't try to fire your inner critic. You'll just keep showing up to work. I tried that. That didn't work. And then my inner critic used that to condemn me. See, see. Now, what I have learned, though, and I learned this largely from my friendly neighborhood therapist wife, Lisa, <laughs> is rather than being harsh to your inner critic, if you move toward it with curiosity and compassion, it will stand down. If you think of your inner critic as a hypervigilant soldier trying to protect you, it's just misguided, well-meaning and misguided. We all have friends like that, well-meaning and misguided. So is your inner critic. And so just what I've learned to do is I hear him start to condemn me rather than shutting it down and stomping it out. I'll just move to it in a posture of curiosity. And here's the phrase I use. What do you need, little buddy? <laughs> and it helps. He's now kind of on a leash rather than having me around the throat. And then my most powerful thing where God's love started to seep into my worried and fearful heart was when rather than um, canceling my inner critic, I contained it with God's first and last word. So I now try to wake up every morning. I don't do this every morning, but I try. And I try to orient myself around God's first word. Now, what is God's first word? God's first word is life. When God spoke in Genesis 1, life. I don't know if you've ever gotten to go scuba diving. I've had the privilege of going scuba diving. I don't mean to flex on you, but on the Great Barrier Reef. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Genesis, the author of Genesis, describes the life that God speaks as teeming. Teeming. There's so much life. It's everywhere. And when you go underwater and just thousands of fish teeming with life... God's first word is life. Genesis chapter 1, life. But also, John chapter 1, life. Amen. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And so every morning, I try to orient my life around the life and love of Jesus Christ. That's how I start. Through the course of the day, I forget God. I get anxious. That's human. I hear my inner critic. I let it run its stupid mouth. I let it run its mouth. And then I try to contain it with God's final word. Amen. What's God's final word? I've been a, a pastor for 26 years and our church uh, was full of young people for a long time and we had a lot of young death. We had a five-year period where, where four young men were tragically killed in five years. And one was our volunteer worship leader and one was the chair of our elders. These were like core that everyone knew these people. And three of the four were Lisa's and my dearest friends. And we didn't know that we were going to make it. I just didn't know how I could grieve my friends and my core leaders while leading my church through grief. It, it was awful. It's wrong to do a funeral when the person in the coffin doesn't have a single wrinkle. It's just wrong. And uh, a few years ago... Um, a friend of mine in our church, his 13-year-old daughter died. And it's just, it's just wrong to have a short coffin. It's just... Paul, in the New Testament, he describes death as a thief. 
And I think that's such a great description where he says it steals, it comes in and it robs. Even if you have a precious loved one who is old and they die, you still feel robbed. You just feel robbed. And what I've noticed about death, because obviously as a chaplain and as a pastor, I've been around way too much death. Way, I don't want to be around any more death ever again. I'm done. I've had it with death. But what I've noticed about it is how arrogant it is. It thinks it gets the last word. Have you ever noticed that if you've ever lost someone precious to you, you're kind of struck dumb. And that's death. It shows up, it steals, it runs its stupid mouth. And then it says, that's the end of the matter. And it leaves. It's so arrogant. It doesn't realize. There's a, a, a poem by John Donne from the Middle Ages. I love this poem where he says, death be not proud. And John Donne says, in the end, death, you're going to die. God's going to throw you in the lake of fire. You're done. The, the, the final word, the final word is resurrection. There is a word after death. And so what I try to do with my inner critic is I, I get it out, I name it to people, and that way it doesn't have control over me. And then I measure it through the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I decide which one is paying. And then by faith and great courage, I believe Jesus over myself. And that took me about three or four years. And for me, the breakthrough was in 2016. And I now have no trouble sitting in the particular love of God. It's amazing. Because I've learned to mistrust the voice of condemnation. One of the prayers I used, and I'm going to invite Kevin to come up uh, just to maybe provide some backdrop so you can maybe take some time just to reflect on this prayer for yourself, is uh, what if I was at least as blank to myself as God is? That's where it really changed for me. What if I were at least as kind to myself as God is? What if, what if I was as loving of myself as God is? What if I was as patient with myself as, as God is? I'm just going to give you 30 seconds to a minute just to reflect on that and maybe for yourself just to begin some work on what the blanks might be for you. And then Kevin and the team will lead us in a final song. I know our prayer team will be available too to come down and pray over anyone who would like.